You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared Yahweh greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of Yahweh, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties, in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As Yahweh your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of Yahweh will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. Has it not been told, My Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh, how I hid a hundred men of Yahweh's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as Yahweh of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. 
Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayers of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 792 of this podcast. Today is Monday, January 8th, 2024. And that was a reading of 1 Kings chapter 18. And one of the most epic showdowns in the Bible. I think David and Goliath, that's probably the best known most commonly talked about. It's certainly an epic showdown when David confronts Goliath. Jesus in the New Testament, when he's in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to him trying to tempt him. That's an epic showdown. Probably the most epic showdown in both Testaments. But as far as the Old Testament is concerned, this one with Elijah confronting Ahab, confronting the prophets of Baal. This is up there. Really, really intense stuff. But let's talk about this and break it down, not in a deconstructionist sort of a way, so as to break apart what it is that is in the text here. Not to be skeptical, not to disenchant ourselves, but to better understand, because this is true. And because this contains a truth about God, and God has not changed. His character has not changed. His purposes overarching have not changed. How he expresses himself in this case reveals something about his character. And what is it that Elijah is praying that God would display himself, that God would show that he is God and that Baal is not God? Now, that's not to say that Baal is not an entity or a person, that Baal is nobody, but then figuratively speaking, poetically, after a fashion, Baal is nobody. And compared to Yahweh God, Baal is no God. And how do we know that? Because 450 prophets of Baal call to Baal at length and no one answers. No one replies. No one's listening. No one answers. If there is a Baal, he is restrained. And who would restrain Baal except someone who is much stronger than Baal, who has much more authority, who has authority even over Baal? And why would you worship Baal if he can be restrained by Yahweh? Why wouldn't you worship Yahweh? But we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? Verse 1, it says, after many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah. So before Elijah reveals himself, God tells Elijah to reveal himself. Go, in the third year, it says, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah goes. God says, go, show yourself. What does Elijah do? He goes and shows himself. To Ahab, but it says, Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, a quick word about Obadiah, because Obadiah being featured is not strictly speaking necessary if all we're supposed to care about is the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If all we're supposed to care about is the confrontation between Elijah and Ahab. But Obadiah is featured in the text, and all scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we should pay attention. We should take note of the fact that Obadiah is over the household of Ahab and he fears Yahweh greatly. And this is reminiscent of, or perhaps a foreshadowing of, how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are God-fearing youths in Babylon, and they serve in the administration of the kingdom of Babylon, even though that kingdom is pagan. That kingdom does not fear God, but they fear God, which is to say that it's possible to be God-fearing and also serve in a official capacity under a king, under a people who do not fear God. And Obadiah is that sort of a God-fearing man. Elijah is God-fearing, and he lives on the fringes. He lives in hiding, even to the point that when Obadiah and Elijah are talking back and forth, Obadiah is like incredulous, right? He's asking Elijah, how can you say, go and say, behold, Elijah is here? How have I sinned? What did I do that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Obadiah is not just going to rush into telling Ahab, hey, I found Elijah, particularly if Elijah might just disappear again. If Elijah is not going to actually show himself to Ahab, it's going to cost Obadiah his life. And as proof to Obadiah that he thinks will also be persuasive and convincing for Elijah, he proffers up the fact that Ahab has been so determined to find Elijah that he has made neighboring kingdoms and peoples swear that Elijah is not among them. Ahab has been seeking Elijah very purposefully, very determinately. And if Obadiah says, I found him, and Elijah is spirited away by Yahweh and disappears again, Obadiah fears that's going to be the end of Obadiah. But they have the back and forth conversation, and Elijah says, verse 15, as Yahweh of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. That satisfies Obadiah. He goes to Ahab and tells him, Ahab comes to meet Elijah, and then there's this great bit of dialogue. High drama, very tense, very terse. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? No pleasant greeting here. No, no, no courtesy. Let's just cut to the chase. I don't like you, and this is all your fault, this famine, this drought. It's all your fault. I've been looking for you. Where have you been? You troubler of Israel. It's accusatory right out the gate. Ahab, king with the capacity and definitely the will to kill God's servants, the servants of Yahweh, the prophets of Yahweh. Jezebel behind the scenes also arranging for the death of the prophets of Yahweh. Obadiah being one who it may or may not be fully appreciated has protected a hundred prophets of Yahweh and hidden them away. That was a risky move. But Ahab says to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah doesn't skip a beat. There's no kowtowing. There's no kissing the ring. There's no pleading 
There's no wringing of his hands. Elijah doesn't come across as nervous at all. He stands his ground and he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. As in, if you want to blame somebody, look in the mirror. If you want to blame somebody for the drought and the famine, blame yourself and your father's house. It's you and your family and your friends. It's you and your circle who turned the people of Israel away from Yahweh and towards the worship of Baal, the Lord of the Canaanite deities. This is your fault. This isn't my fault. This is your fault. But he doesn't wait for a response. He doesn't pause there after turning it right around. He says, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Whoa, ho, ho. Not only is Elijah not kowtowing, but he's telling Ahab what to do. He's going to give orders to Ahab. Gather all Israel to me and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table, that is your wife's table, your queen's table. Gather them to me. We're going to have a little showdown. We're going to settle this. Ahab, rather than argue in the text, it's presented that he sends to all the people of Israel and gathers the prophets as Elijah has said for him to do. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Translation, you double-minded people, how long are you going to be so double-minded and two-faced? Let's make this really, really simple. You got to pick one. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Translation, you're worshiping a God who is no God compared with the God of our forefathers. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you that you've made the wrong choice. You've worshiped the wrong God and you need to turn away from Baal and turn back to worship of Yahweh alone. Yahweh only. The people do not answer. Not a word. There's a kind of stunned silence, I think, where they shift uncomfortably, perhaps wondering what else he's going to say. Is that it? (laughs) We come all this way for him to just say that? What do you say in reply? I don't know. We kind of need to know whether this is safe to agree with Elijah because we know what happened to the prophets of Yahweh, who Obadiah didn't hide. We know that they were killed. And so this was not just a, oh, you know, everybody can worship whoever they want to worship. If you want to worship Yahweh, yeah, that's fine. No, no. Ahab's and Jezebel's administration over Israel was marked by violent persecution of the worshippers and the spokespersons of Yahweh. So if you want to talk about who's being tolerant and who's being intolerant religiously, try on for size Ahab and Jezebel putting the prophets of Yahweh to the sword. Don't miss that. Maybe that's a factor in why the people of Israel are silent, why they don't answer a word to Elijah. In any event, he continues, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull 
and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then the people answer, it is well spoken. What I think this boils down to is they need this kind of a show, this kind of a display to get them off dead center themselves because they've forgotten that Yahweh is God in part because fear has made them stupid. Fear is the mind killer and it's made them stupid. Fear of Ahab, fear of Jezebel, fear of the prophets of Baal, fear of the prophets of Asherah, fear of those who follow after Baal and Asherah who are not prophets, everybody who just does whatever they're told as long as there's a little bit of reward in it or as long as there's a punishment. If you don't do whatever you're told, there's a totalitarianism to Ahab and Jezebel's reign over Israel. And so they just give totally themselves and their minds and their hearts and their souls even to whatever it is that Ahab and Jezebel say, otherwise it could cost them their lives. And they know that. If they're conservatives after a fashion of the old worship of Yahweh, of their forefathers, the old obedience to commandments from Yahweh, devotion to Yahweh, if there's conservatism, they know that it's dangerous to be a conservative and to be conserving worship of Yahweh, obedience to Yahweh openly. And so even if you agree with Elijah, even if you like what Elijah is saying, you wait until he has put out a test that the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, Ahab and Jezebel, unless this has all been one big bluff, they can't say no. They lose face if they say no, because then the question is going to be, oh, what? You don't think Baal would answer? Are you afraid? Are you chicken? You don't have confidence in your own God that you've been insisting everybody worship instead of Yahweh? What are you afraid that Yahweh is going to answer and Baal is not going to answer? There's no option for Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of the false gods except to say, you're on. We'll show you. And so the people answer when it's safe to answer. It is well spoken. And they have to be thinking, however this shakes out, they're safe. In terms of how people are going to relate to people here, just humanly speaking, they're safe because either neither God will answer, in which case this is just do whatever the strongest guy with the biggest stick who's offering the best rewards for obedience tells you to do. Or, on the other hand, Baal answers and Yahweh doesn't answer, in which case I guess we've been doing the right thing and we're affirmed now in having just gone along with Ahab and Jezebel and forgotten Yahweh, the God of our forefathers, because he wasn't any God, in which case, humanly speaking, there's no loss of face on our part for us to say it is well spoken. And lastly, if Yahweh answers and Baal doesn't answer, then we have cover. And then maybe there'll be safety in numbers and we will all together find that we can turn back to Yahweh and we've wanted to, but we didn't have the courage and we didn't feel safe in doing so, but there will be safe in numbers if we band together and all return to Yahweh and we all turn our attention to driving out the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. But it says here, verse 25, as soon as the people have answered, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And he's very adamant about that. He says this a number of times, put no fire to it, as if they might, 
as if they might try a little trickery. They might help their God along a little bit. Put no fire to it also is for the ears of the people of Israel so that they'll watch and they'll pay attention and they'll make sure that there's no funny business here. It says they took the first bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon for hours saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar. And that's a curious word to use, limped. That was the question that Elijah had asked the people of Israel. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? And it says here that they limped around the altar that they had made. This word for limped or limping, it only occurs three times in the Old Testament, according to my Bible app, literal Bible, literal word, Bible app. The word is pesah. It means to limp, to be lame. It occurs twice here in 1 Kings chapter 18, once before in 2 Samuel 4.4, talking about the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who fell and became lame when he was young. But it says here, at noon, Elijah mocked them, these prophets of Baal, saying, cry aloud for he is a god. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So this is dripping with contempt, condescension. This is also a dramatic performance for the people of Israel. The mockery here is not because Elijah is just a mean person. No, no. This needs to be very clear for the audience at home, for the spectators, for the people of Israel, who must choose and stop limping back and forth between two different opinions. They need to see the absurdity of the prophets of Baal and the absurdity of worshiping Baal. Verse 28, they, that is the prophets of Baal, cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So it just got to be kind of sad and embarrassing and awkward and pathetic And it just goes on and on and on, hour after hour after hour. And they're desperately trying to prove that Baal is God and that they are legitimate prophets and that they are legitimate religious authorities. And what's at stake if they're not, after a fashion, the legitimacy of Ahab and Jezebel as king and queen over Israel is at stake because they have hitched the wagon of their civil authority to the false worship of Baal and Asherah. Very publicly, not quietly, not just, well, you know, whoever you worship, that's your business. That's none of our business. No, it's very much the public's business. When the worship of Baal and Asherah turns into the murder of the prophets of Yahweh, the violent persecution of those who are most publicly aligned with Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh, it's kind of a big deal. And everybody knows that it's a big deal. And not for no reason does Elijah, when he confronts Ahab, tell Ahab to gather the people, all the people of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. Not for no reason. But verse 30, then Elijah said to the people, all the people come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Who threw it down? Why did they throw it down? Well, there was a new sheriff in town. There was a new God, and there was a new king, and there was a new 
way of doing things. And that whole worship of Yahweh business was supposed to be on the wrong side of history. And so, yeah, it wasn't just that the people shifted or the king's devotion and the queen's devotion shifted back to the Canaanite deities. It was also the killing of the prophets of Yahweh and the tearing down of an altar to Yahweh altogether to symbolize that that's over. Get over here with us, worshiping Baal, worshiping Asherah, obeying unquestioningly Ahab and Jezebel. But Elijah repairs the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah takes 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom Yahweh and the word of Yahweh had said, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And on this point too, what's interesting is that this altar with 12 stones is not just symbolic of the worship of Yahweh. It's also symbolic specifically of God's interaction with their forefathers. What makes them a people in the first place? That they were born into a family. They were born into the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob being renamed Israel, and that God established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why they're a people in the first place. And so to forget God is to forget themselves as well. They lose their identity. They lose themselves. Elijah takes 12 stones, and this is symbolic. This is not just random happenings. This is not just random trivia. It's not just by chance that he takes 12 stones. No, it's according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, which is to say, however bad, however corrupt, however bleak Israel was in Elijah's day, it didn't matter if the point of remembering that they were descended from 12 sons of Jacob, 12 sons of one man Jacob, was that God had blessed Jacob. God had established a covenant with Jacob and his descendants. And I think in our day, a very similar thing is happening. And you can understand what's going on in the context of 1 Kings chapter 18 better if you think of it in terms of images and rhetoric from today about tearing down statues of notable figures from American history who are loathsome to the radical left. The radical left, just imagine instead of preaching woke and reproductive rights and the affirmation of homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, instead of them demanding action on climate change and redistribution of wealth and the abolition of capitalism, instead of that, or perhaps preceding that, they were advocating for the worship of Baal. Just suppose with me, all that energy, all that heat, all that hostility and abrasiveness and irritableness and insistence was actually directed at worshipers of Yahweh and those who remembered fondly that we are descended from the 12 sons of one man, Jacob, and that God established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What sorts of things would be said in the context of 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah, and the showdown with the prophets of Baal? What sorts of things would be said in his day, I think, would be very similar to the kinds of things that are said today. 
The majority of people are just too afraid to think straight and they don't know what to do. And so they just try and keep their heads down. The ones who are more courageous and more bold, and they have associated themselves publicly with serving Yahweh, serving God Almighty, they get canceled. (laughs) Why? Because you have to cancel them for all the same reasons that you have to tear down these statues, because you have to clear away the effects of the old story and the old remembrance of things. If we remember who we are and who we descend from and their relationship with God and how that brought us to now and how the good things we enjoy, the peace, the prosperity, the safety, the joy of fellowship with one another, identifying ourselves and one another as a people, as a nation blessed by God, in order to get us to stop being so stuck on that, you have to cancel. You have to act aggressively against the people who are not so scared and they're not so timid and they don't just keep their heads down or you know that they won't. You know that they're going to be the ones to speak up and to say, this is wrong. And thus says Yahweh and repent. You have to clear out the sort of person that Elijah is. Ahab and Jezebel know that. And it might seem strange to us because we think that the radical revolution going on in America today is merely ideological. It's merely political. It's merely philosophical. It's just a misunderstanding. It's just a phase. They'll come out of it. What if actually at root it's spiritual and it has much in common with the worship of Baal? It has much in common with Jeroboam having two golden calves made to keep the people of Israel from going back to the house of David, killing him if they were displeased with the job he was doing as king over Israel, making two golden calves and saying, behold, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump from behold, your gods who brought you out of Egypt, these two golden calves, to let's kill all the prophets of Yahweh. Let's tear down the altar of Yahweh. Elijah, when he says, come near to me, and all the people come near to him, he repairs the altar. And it's not either or. Either you're doing this from pure motives, and by that we mean dedication to Yahweh God, or you're doing this as a kind of culture warring, just trying to assert a supremacy for your ideas, your opinions, your biases. It's not either or that you would remember your forefathers and their relationship with God and what they believed about God and what they believed about themselves and their effects and what legacy they left to their descendants, including us, up to this day. It's not either that or you're dedicated to honoring God in the present. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why the radical revolutionaries in Elijah's day and in our day want you to forget who you descend from and how your forefathers loved God, feared God, trusted God, meditated on his word day and night is because when you forget your forefathers who loved Yahweh, you will also forget Yahweh. And when you forget Yahweh, they will be able to say, behold, these are the gods you should actually credit. Think revisionist history. Think tearing down of statues. But Elijah rebuilds and repairs the altar of Yahweh. And he says something very meaningful, very poignant in come near to me, Watch, watch me repair this. 
He says something meaningful by a demonstration of taking the 12 stones. And if everybody has gotten rather bored and it's gotten rather awkward with regards to the prophets of Baal, that they go on and on and on and they're cutting themselves as is their custom and they're limping around pleading with Baal, please answer us. This is so embarrassing. And maybe they're limping because they're injured from cutting themselves so much until the blood gushed out upon them, it says. They're desperate. The people are paying attention when Elijah at a certain point says, come near to me, come close, watch, essentially, is what the purpose is for coming near. Verse 33, it says, and he put the wood in order and cut the bolt in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, who is he telling to do this? Presumably because it's just him versus the 450 prophets of Baal. He is instructing the people, all the people, anybody who's going to step in and help. And so now they're participating. And this is very clever because it would seem as though they're participating simultaneously in opposition to his being successful, which allows them to save face with Ahab and Jezebel. But at the same time, they're participating by doing exactly what Elijah, the man of God, the prophet of God, is telling them to do. So they're covered, and they do what it is that Elijah says, filling four jars with water, pouring it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he says, do it a second time. They do it a second time. He says, do it a third time. And they do it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. There's so much water, there will be no mistaking what happens next. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, a couple of things to note here. This whole chapter is worth an episode. It really is, just by itself, because this is rich. This is nutrient-dense material here for what ails us today. Elijah comes near and says, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Again, this is not just calling to remembrance who God is, but who God is relative to this people that they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was renamed Israel because he wrestled with God. A calling to remembrance of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will also call to remembrance the way that God made a covenant with this people and promised to establish them. And they're even a nation and a people in the first place because God blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Elijah says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. That's the first priority. But that's not all. And that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Now, why is this significant? Well, for a couple of reasons. What's the first thing that Ahab says to Elijah when he sees him for the first time in years, years of drought and famine? He calls him out for being a troubler of Israel. Oh, there you are, you troublemaker you who have troubled Israel. And what is Elijah's response? I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are. But call to all Israel and call the prophets of Baal and call the prophets of Asherah. Call them to me at Mount Carmel. For Elijah to pray to God that God would make it clear 
that Elijah is his servant and Elijah has done everything that he's done with commanding that there would be a drought and then henceforth a famine. That's a legitimate prayer. I want it to be obvious that I follow you. I obey you. I serve you. What's interesting in part here for me, this week, last week, there were some discussions between me and my friends, J.P. Chavez and Paul Pavlik, about starting to read Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. And so I've started and I've read so far the first week's reading. I haven't read yet the second week's, this week's, but I've read the epistle to the reader. I've read the prefatory. And here in Institutes of the Christian Religion, you have John Calvin, who is by place of birth, a Frenchman, and he's very troubled by how the French Huguenots, the French Protestants who are reformed in their doctrine are being persecuted violently by the Roman Catholic Church in France and by King Francis I of France. He's very troubled by this, and he's very troubled by the things that are said about them, not instead of persecution, but as a part of the persecution and also as a justification for the persecution of them. He was already writing the Institutes, but then he adapts the purpose of Institutes of the Christian Religion to making a legal defense, in part to the King of France, that no, we are not heretics, and no, we have not departed from the true faith. In fact, we are calling for reform because we love sound doctrine. We love the scriptures. We love the word of God. We love God. We love Christ. We want Christ. John Calvin, writing Institutes of the Christian Religion, is writing as somebody who studied law, he's making a defense that is going to stand up in court, the court of the King of France and also the court of public opinion because the King of France does not move alone against French Huguenots. The people also participate in violently persecuting their countrymen who are Protestant. But for Elijah here to say, let it be known this day, not just that you are God in Israel, but that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word, makes a different kind of sense with Calvin's Institutes, fresh in my mind, the prefatory, the epistle to the reader, because essentially the kindness to show to the Protestant reformed French Huguenots who are being persecuted is not just, I may persuade those who persecute them to stop persecuting them. There's that. I mean, that's legit. But there's also you are not what they say you are and here. You can have assurance of your salvation and you can have assurance that you have sound doctrine and you're not a heretic. Here is what a Christian believes is true about God and about man and about what is the whole duty of man. What's the chief end of man? Where are we from? How did we get here? Where are we going? What should we be about in the meantime? It seems to me as though Elijah asking God that it would be obvious that Elijah is his servant and that he's done all these things in obedience to the word of God, that is of a piece with softening the hearts of the people. Because at a certain point, if the propaganda machine is very good at pinning it all on one person, and then you're laser focused, if you're an undecided person who just keeps their head down, tries not to get into trouble, tries not to attract notice, tries not to make waves until this all gets sorted out. Whoever we're going to worship, whoever's going to be king, I just don't need to get in the middle of it. If the propaganda machine is especially effective at pinning all of the troubles on the person 
who loves God, who follows after God, who faithfully delivers the word of God, then a hardness of heart towards the person who serves God is of a piece with a hardness of heart towards God himself. And Elijah knows that, and God knows that, and we know that. And again, I think we see this very thing happening in our day where there's so much criticism of Christians for being anti-science, for being bigots, for being misogynistic, for being homophobes, Islamophobes. The beef is not first and foremost with the Christians. The beef is first and foremost with Christ and with his word, with the authority of Jesus Christ. Not to say that there aren't things to criticize in me, if you're a Christian, in you, there's plenty to criticize, but it gives more grace. And that's not why they're criticizing us so hard. It's to scapegoat us, and it's also to drive a further wedge between the people, all the people who are the real prize here, and devotion to God. Because devotion to God will get in the way as the radicals, as the revolutionaries see it. That devotion to God will get in the way of evolving in your positions, doing whatever the revolutionaries want you to do next. Which is to say, when their first move is to try and strip you of your Christian religion and your Christian faith and your commitment to Christian truth and your obedience to the commands of God, when that's their first move, and then they're going back and forth between economic analysis, political analysis, cultural works, and trying to strip you of your Christian faith publicly, you know that what comes next when they think they have captured the hearts of all the people would be very obviously abhorrent to previous generations of our countrymen, our forefathers in this country who were publicly Christian. You know that what comes next, what they want to do next, what they want you to do next would be abhorrent. And so the ones like Elijah, the prophets in his day, the saints in our day, get scapegoated. Part of the prayer that is appropriate is not just that God would be shown to be God and truly God in our country, but that God would also vindicate those who have been speaking on his behalf, if in fact we have been speaking faithfully. If what we have done and suffered for was truly and genuinely devotion to God. If we lived in a harassed, harried way, in hiding, on the outskirts, on the fringes for years, and that wasn't just our eccentricity, and wasn't just our foolish pride, that wasn't just some quirk in us, it wasn't mental illness, it wasn't stubbornness, it wasn't a failure to understand the importance of obeying the civil authorities. I mean, Ahab is king after all. Who do you think you are, Elijah, speaking to him like that? Mm. It's important that as the people's hearts would turn back to God, the people's hearts would also be softened with regards to those who have been persecuted and lied about and slandered. All manner of evil has been said against them for his name's sake. But here it says, Answer me, O Yahweh. 37. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Who's doing the turning? If God answers this prayer of Elijah, it's God himself who's turning the hearts of his people back to himself. Verse 38, then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed 
the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now on this point, you may say, Ooh, okay, so this is not cool. But wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Don't forget that this is justice. (laughs) This isn't revenge. This isn't, oh, that's rather harsh. No, no, this is justice. Under Ahab and Jezebel, the prophets of God in Israel were hunted and murdered. Anyone and anything associated with Yahweh was dead on arrival. You can kill them on sight, tear down them and their works, their name, their reputation, their effects. Not for no reason was Obadiah hiding a hundred prophets. Not for no reason did God himself tell Elijah, go and hide yourself. These prophets of Baal are complicit in the murder of the prophets of Yahweh and in the corrupting of the people of Israel. They are not innocent. They are not legitimately worshiping according to the dictates of their conscience. If you have a rather too lofty view of freedom of religion, you'll say, well, that's not right. Who decides? Do you decide? Do I decide whether it's right that they would deserve death and that they would get death for having corrupted the people and having participated in the murder of the prophets of Yahweh? And oh, by the way, where did Ahab and Jezebel get the idea or Who was the primary recipient of the instruction to hunt the prophets of Yahweh? This showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah is a response in kind to the game that they were playing, except this is the trump card because God himself is playing and Baal doesn't answer. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no voice. At the last here, the last paragraph Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, who you've got to imagine is just like stone-faced at this point. Having watched this all, he's probably very weary and not quite sure what's going to happen next. But verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. Ahab doesn't say anything back. He goes up to eat and drink. Elijah, for his part, goes up on top of Mount Carmel. He bows himself down on the earth and puts his face between his knees. And this is probably something of a reset (laughs) of his nervous system and his mindset and his attitude because, boy, howdy, would that be a stressful, exhausting day. The showdown with 450 prophets of Baal. This is a time to humble yourself before God if you're in Elijah's position. And so he does up on Mount Carmel. But verse 43, he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again. And at the seventh time, seven times he says this, look again, which is kind of comical, just a little bit. Although seven is symbolic, it doesn't mean that it was only symbolic that this would happen literally seven times. The servant at a certain point must be like, Elijah, (laughs) my dude, (laughs) There is nothing happening. (laughs) 
And yet, at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And we leave on a cliffhanger this chapter. But he really must have been replenished with that whole bowing down on Mount Carmel. And he gets up and he goes running. He's going to run ahead of Ahab on the chariot, and he's going to beat him there. He'll be ahead of him at the entrance of Jezreel. But this is interesting too. And I want to not have you or I myself miss this. The same God who shows up and answers the prayer of Elijah to send fire, to consume the bull, the wood, even the stones, even the dust and the water, everything is consumed with fire. The same God who answers the prayer of Elijah in that way to win the duel with the prophets of Baal, also when he sends rain, he sends quite a lot of it. And he sends it in such a time that there's no mistaking that these things are connected and that the God who answered the prayer of Elijah with regards to this offering and apparently restrained Baal's ability to answer the prayers of the prophets of Baal, that same God has been withholding just like he restrained Baal and he restrained the prophets of Baal from being successful. He's been restraining the rain even. Think about Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, commanding the wind and the waves, and even they obeyed. Here we have Yahweh, God of Israel, holding back the rains and the weather obeys. But then if Elijah prays and asks for the rain because Elijah is a servant of God, faithfully doing what it is that God has told him to do, it's not an either or, it's a both and, that Elijah would ask for what is God's good pleasure to give here, which is rain, and there will be so much rain that you should probably get ahead of this storm, Ahab. I know it's been a minute since it last rained, but this is going to be a wet one. What does the rain mean? Yes, it's symbolic, okay? But what does it mean both symbolically and materially? Materially, the rain is upstream, no pun intended, of the ability to grow crops and feed livestock and ultimately feed yourselves. However much else in the way of riches you've built up and accumulated, fantastic, beautiful houses and palaces and all manner of impressive furniture, statues, decor, however nice your clothes are at a certain point, all that wears out and you can't maintain it, and you can't repair it, and you can't expand on it when you don't have food, when you can't even eat, or when you have to buy food at a premium from surrounding nations because they have food and you don't have food. It's like the clouds just carve a path around Israel and it never rains in Israel anymore hasn't for some time. And so we have to buy our food from somebody else, which means we're dependent, which means they mark it up. And there's also the transportation cost. This is the way to impoverish a people. But then that is to say, that's a way to humble a people because first and foremost, their relationship to God, their attitude towards God is what needs to be corrected here. And if an economic 
downturn is what it takes, well then so be it. Hashtag worth it. When the rains come again, people will be able to drink. That's important to sustaining life. People will be able to grow crops. People will be able to feed themselves and their families. People will be able to feed their livestock and raise livestock. People will be able to regain an independence that they have lost. And what's interesting too is before the famine and the drought and all that business of the rain not coming, the people had lost their independence and their freedom and they just didn't know it. They were already impoverished because of the likes of Ahab and Jezebel stealing their hearts away from Yahweh and convincing them to worship the Baals and to worship the Asherah. Their worship the Canaanite deities was actually the beginning of their judgment or their punishment or their pain or their suffering or their dependence or their enslavement. And all the while, the narrative that is useful for the radicals, for the revolutionaries, for the proselytes to actually give up on worship of Yahweh and commit themselves to worship of Baal and also complete total devotion to Ahab and Jezebel. What's the useful narrative? That Yahweh is oppressive. Yahweh is harsh. He expects too much and he expects unreasonable things. And look at all the fun we can have if we give up on and forsake worship of Yahweh. Look how much freer you'll be. That's what's meant by the right side of history when people introduce, at first with a suggestion and then in due time, demand insistence that you participate in acts of homosexuality, bisexuality, gender confusion, affirming the same, when you participate in child sacrifice and the corruption of minors, when you are commanded to covet everything that belongs to your neighbor, when you are required, according to the new religion, the new doctrine, the new paradigm, you're required to participate in confiscating everything that belongs to your neighbor so that it can be radically redistributed, not just all over the country, but all over the world. If you're not on hard times economically as a people or as an individual, right then when you turn away from devotion to God, following after Christ, if you're not impoverished and enslaved, literally and physically and materially, but you are mentally, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, socially, Perhaps the greatest mercy is that your nation would be suffering economically in a material sense, so that the material condition of your nation matches the spiritual condition of your nation. You thought you were being liberated from Yahweh. You're just serving all of the gods of the nations, and they are cruel masters. And you're given over to them, and you see that what was advertised is not what has been delivered. You will rue the day. You turned from Yahweh to worship the gods of the nations. And yet it's a mercy to the people. It's the goodness of God for the name of God, but it's also kindness and love for the people of God. Yes, even those who are wayward or cowardly or faithless, that Elijah confronts Ahab and Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal and that God answers the prayer of Elijah should prove to us that it's all of the above, not either or. Oh, you're interested in the economy? That seems rather carnal and fleshly and not very spiritual. 
God's very interested in the economy, actually. Now, I say that, and what I might mean by he's very interested in the economy includes but is not limited to wanting to bless a nation and people who honor him truly, not just in word but in deed. Their hearts are not far from him, even as their honoring is confined to the lips. God is also very interested in the economy as a tool and a mechanism for bringing judgment on a people that has forgotten him, turned their back on him, worshiped other gods, been disobedient. Have we been led astray by any better people than those who led astray the people of Israel in Elijah's day? Are the folks who have tried to convince us you can worship God in the way that these people worship their God, or you can worship any way you want, anything you do will actually be worship. As long as you don't offend us, it'll go well for you. That's all God really wants, is for you to just do whatever we tell you to do. When that's the political theology that's offered up, I think that we're dealing with hirelings. All you really need to know about how to relate to those in authority is just do whatever they tell you to do. Wait a second, that's rather a mismatch for Elijah and Ahab here. And oh, by the way, Obadiah serving as an overseer in Ahab's household under his kingship and yet hiding a hundred prophets of Yahweh when he knows that his master, the king, would be displeased by that. It's running contrary and opposite the public objectives, the public campaigning of Ahab and Jezebel. That doesn't match the just do whatever your civil authorities happen to tell you next, without question, without objection, without working behind the scenes or even openly to their face to confront them. Elijah does not apologize. There is no apology for Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, verse 17, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troublemaker, you troubler of Israel? Ahab is putting on a show, or maybe he really has convinced himself too. They've gathered after this all Israel and the prophets. But at this point, maybe it's just Ahab and Obadiah and a small retinue of guards, high officials. It's at least Ahab and Elijah. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah does not apologize here. Oh, you know what? I have been doing some thinking and God did put you in the position of authority here. And so if I'm going to honor God, I really just need to do whatever you tell me to do. So what do you want me to do? Do you want me to have the reins come back? Okay. Sorry about that. I think I misunderstood or misinterpreted. Yeah, it's on me. My bad. My bad. No. Elijah answers Ahab. I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandment of Yahweh and followed the Baals. So this puts it back into a proper perspective. Before Ahab can legitimately demand submission to his authority, he first needs to be confronted by the prophet of God with his refusal to submit to God's authority. Ahab has refused to submit to God's authority himself, And not content to do that privately just by himself, as some do, he has turned, he and his father's house have turned the people of Israel to joining them in abandoning the commandments of Yahweh and following the Baals. This is very important for us to appreciate 
as we're trying to develop sound political theology as Christians. Yes, be polite, be respectful, all that. But they're straight up murdering prophets in Israel under Ahab and Jezebel. This is not live and let live. This is not your coexist bumper sticker, dreadlocks, you smell a little bit like weed just faintly, but that might be the cologne that you like because it smells like weed. Kind of mix in a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of New Age, a little bit of astrology. But yeah, it's fine. Yeah, thanks for the invitation to church. I don't, I'm not really into the whole Jesus thing. This isn't everybody love everybody, tolerance, open-mindedness. No, no, this is choose. You're going to be on the right side of history. Are you going to affirm what your king and his wife, the queen, are doing and how they're leading? Are we going to have unity or not? This is politics as much as it is religion. Because, oh, by the way, all politics is, is the business of making decisions together. And so the decisions being made together when they involve people of wildly disparate religious convictions that are informing what seems good to the respective parties, you're not going to have unity of purpose unless somebody comes along and they say, all right, let's all agree. Let's come up with some composite religion. Let's make a claim. And you have to pay no attention to the details and the particulars of the scriptures, the traditions, the yada, yada to this point in order to make this stick. But then most people are content to do that. Most people are not studying those things in the first place and they're happy for the excuse, much less the command to pay no attention to that stuff. But tell people we all worship the same God. Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Moloch, all these gods, they're all the same God, really. All the gods, one God, no God, who cares? What's really important is unity. And because the king and the queen and these prophets of Baal have set the terms and they're the ones in authority, well, we should just go with it. The ball is in their court. No pun intended. But yes, actually pun intended. I lied. I'm sorry. Pun intended. If we would become more acquainted with Elijah and the showdown with the prophets of Baal, Moses is another great one. I mentioned David earlier, but Moses confronting Pharaoh, king over Egypt, his showdown with the court magicians of Pharaoh, the plagues, which very similar to what's happening here with Elijah, were to demonstrate that this person speaks for God. They're not just making it up. They're not some crazy person who just wandered out of the desert talking off the top of their head. No, no, this is from God. So that you will know that this is from God and they speak for God here. And this is as close as you can handle you being wicked, foolish. This is as close as you can get to God in your sinful condition, unrepentant. They speak for God. They're delivering what it is that God wanted them to tell you. And so if you're not listening to them, you're not listening to God. If you hate them, you hate God because you're hating them for the sake of what it is that God told them to say to you. And oh, by the way, isn't that what it was about in the first place? Isn't that why they were sent to you in the first place? Because you hated God. Let's make sure we get the timeline correct here. If we would study Elijah and Moses and David for their most confrontational, landmark, pivotal, defining moments relative those who were in positions of authority and those who brought religion into it, we would have a much clearer picture of our current circumstance and what is going on in our country, that it is not just politics. No, no. Not when increasingly you have 
Satanists performing satanic rituals or mock satanic rituals in schools, on the TV, at award ceremonies, in concerts. You increasingly have products being marketed to the public which glamorize and glorify the demonic and the satanic and the dark and the bloody and the evil. And that's being made to look sexy because just like it's used 80 plus times to describe idolatry in the Old Testament, whoring after the demons, the false gods, it always starts with appealing to our most base desires and appetites. And in the end, it's death. There is no new thing under the sun. This might be a new thing to our generation relative to the last several, but it's not new. And the showdown with Elijah and the prophets of Paul can be very instructive, very encouraging, and it can also be very clarifying when there are some who purport to be teaching Christian doctrine who say, if you're ever disagreeing or contradicting relative, a person who makes a claim to civil authority, if you're ever doing that publicly, you're in sin. You're a bad Christian. You didn't read the Bible. Here, let me open to Romans 13. See, it says, be subject. Close the book. Wait, didn't it say some more? No, 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 don't worry about that. How about focus on obeying, be subject to the governing authorities first. Once you've got that figured out, then we can read the rest. But by then, it's too late, and you've completely forgotten God. And functionally, the civil authority who is in the flesh, however godly or ungodly they are, now has become your go-between. Instead of you getting into the scriptures and finding out what accords with sound doctrine and whether what's being taught actually accords with sound doctrine, being a Berean about it. And by the way, the Berean Jews were praised, not castigated. When it says they were of a more noble character than the Jews of Thessalonica, it was because, not in spite of, but due to, their searching the scriptures daily to see whether the gospel Paul and Barnabas preached to them was true. There's much more in common for those Berean Jews with Elijah than we appreciate. Now, Obadiah in 1 Kings 18, we can relate to him because Elijah tells him, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And the response from Obadiah is as good as Obadiah is, saving and protecting and hiding the prophets of Yahweh like he did. He's honest. And he's where most of the best of us in America today are, asking, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As Yahweh your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of Yahweh will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh, how I hid a hundred of them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. What would otherwise be a totally reasonable, normal, non-controversial, uncomplicated thing to do, go tell him I'm here when a people and a nation go the way of Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Paul, even something as simple as that is a matter of life and death. And that's, I'm sorry to say, increasingly where we're at And it only gets worse from here unless we turn back to Christ, unless God would turn our hearts to him. And we should pray like Elijah does, 
that God would do just that. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. This was a great chapter. I've looked forward to getting into it. Now we have, we spent the whole episode going through it, but it was time well spent. Our next episode will be subscriber only. So do subscribe for 99 cents a month. That's all it costs. And you won't have to wait until February 1st to listen. But in the meantime, whether you do or you don't, thank you for listening. As always, until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.